We have a crisis of the soul and of identity. Many Western countries don't know what they are, what they stand for. They can't even ask, answer basic questions about what it means to be a man or a woman or an upstanding citizen anymore. And so we're just teetering along and just kind of rolling down the hill of ultimate destruction. Today, sit down with Esther Kreku, a Ghanaian-born writer and broadcaster based in the UK. We discuss cultural ills she sees gripping the developed Western world, from postmodernist ideology to COVID dogma to the breakdown of the family. Meanwhile, in the West, it's just about deconstructing things for the sake of it and then, you know, to hell with all the social consequences that come as a result of that. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelik. Esther Kreku, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm really looking forward to chatting. I was thinking of having a bit of a lighter American Thought Leaders episode for a moment, and I've really been enjoying all of your commentary. You know, you grew up in a couple of very different cultures from American and Canadian, which is my native, and frankly, Polish, which is also part of my culture. And what I really want to get is this sort of a little bit of an external view on what's happening in North America, in the West in general. And you're, of course, Ghanaian, right? Tell me a, a little tiny bit about, you know, your arrival on the scene as a as a political and cultural commentator in the UK? Oh, wow. Uh, okay. Well, I um, so I originally moved to the UK when I was 14, and it was primarily just for an education. Um, and my parents made that very clear. So I would, uh, I was, I was studying the UK, but then every sort of Christmas and summer holiday I spent back home in Ghana. So I was effectively spending three months a year back home. Um, and it was I was strictly here for an education. And then I sort of finished school and then I went to university and I did that and um, I started working. And at university, I studied uh, politics and French. So I was always quite uh, engaged politically. I did debate and I did MUN and all the usual stuff that students do. And so when I graduated from university, I was uh, I was working a normal job that I really did not like, as most people do when they leave university. <laughs> and I got involved with a student grassroots organisation uh, called Turning Point UK, uh, which is actually the UK version of Turning Point US, which is the much bigger franchise. Um, but obviously Turning Point UK is much more focused on British uh, issues and um, sort of spreading conservative values amongst the youth here, because clearly that's not a very fashionable thing to do. I had my own show and I used to interview sort of MPs and uh prominent figures within mainstream politics here in the UK. And from there, I, I sort of took on a few more broadcasting gigs. I started writing a, a bit more. And that's kind of is how I found my voice and how most people know of me um, through through sort of my, um, my activism and my work with Turning Point UK. The part that I find most interesting, right? I, I, I've been watching, you know, some of your interviews, both that you've done that you, and has, as you've been interviewed. And, uh, you know, UK culture is quite different from US culture and Ghanaian culture is quite different from UK yeah. culture in itself. And that gives you this outside view, even in the, let's call it the conservative sphere as you're talking about. Well, so, so what's going on in the West? <laughs> An identity crisis. <laughs> Um, so, I, you know, and I, I had this conversation with my friends that I met because I, I actually realized that even sort of as a conservative, I was a, a bit of a, a minority. I was a minority within a minority, if that makes sense. Um, so, you know, a bit about my background. Um, I grew up in a sort of standard two parent home. Um, my parents uh, are 
you know, Christian, Ghanaian, very traditional, very kind of orthodox in their in their thinking and their values and their thinking. Um, and so for me, what was the norm and what I thought was normal conservative values, actually in the West, it's, it very much depends on sort of where the Overton window is. So I would have conversations with people about, you know, the benefits of a two-parent home and kind of social conservatism. And they would agree so far as it was kind of within the context of normality where they are. Right. So I, I noticed in, in the West, for instance, if you say something like, uh, oh, you probably, you know, want a mother and father at home, raise, uh, you know, living together, married, raising their kids. The first thing I hear is, oh, but what if the father is like this? Oh, but what if the mother is like this? And it's, I mean, all sorts of excuses that they make as if, you know, the, these outliers sort of negate the rule as if that's not what we should be aiming for, because there is a mother that's like this or a father that's like that. And I, I find it very weird. So one of my observations about sort of conservatism in, in the West is it's very flexible, right? It's, there's not a point that it's aiming towards. It really has just become sort of a countercultural movement. Um, so it's kind of just become the backstop to sort of progressive or over about progressive overreach as opposed to actually aiming towards something um another thing i've noticed about sort of conservatism is that in the west is um there's not really much of an emphasis or a value and wisdom of the past so in my language um it, um in akan which is what we speak in, in in ghana we have this concept called sankofa which literally translates to go back and get it right so, so go to the past and get it and the whole concept behind that is you know looking to the past and seeing what people got did right and got right back back then and sort of carrying that on carrying that tradition because there's no need to fix it if it's not broken and i feel like that's not really a concept that well certainly not in sort of western progressives but certainly not in western conservatives either we always find trying to find a new and different way to 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 shake up things that have always have been the bedrock of, of western societies as well um and i mostly talk about in terms of you know the family education um, social cohesion, that sort of thing. I feel more of a synergy and understanding with people that come from sort of other parts of the world, like this, this, this you know, Indian subcontinent or African countries or even Latin American countries. There's a, there's a greater synergy in our, our understanding of conservatism than in the West, which seems to kind of move with the wind and it effectively serves as a backstop to progressive overreach, which is fascinating <laughs> and almost counterproductive. Well, what's really interesting about what you're talking about is to me is this, there's just this assumption of progress, right? And that that progress is just good, period, right? Now, yeah. it, I, and I, when I, even when I say this, I think of course, it seems like that's true. Is, is it true? Well, it depends on your definition of progress. How people um, orient themselves really differs, right? So for, for them, progress is, you know, no barriers, no sense of shame. I mean, there's so many examples I can draw on, um, but for, I'll, I'll give an example, the body positivity movement, which is probably the most mind-numbingly annoying development of our time. Um, they see it as progress that, you know, people are, are free to be who they are, which is fine, and, you know, free to have their bodies and no consequences and all bodies are valid and beautiful. Uh, and anything to the counter, anything that tries to impose standards or a sense of reality or just, you know, normality is, is effectively body shaming, right? So for instance, th th there's this activism around having really overweight, objectively unattractive models on the cover of magazines because they're valid and because they're just as beautiful as women that actually decided to eat healthily and go to the gym and work out and get a, and attain a healthy, uh, objectively attractive body. And, you know, to some people, that's a form of pro progress because you've, you've eliminated all forms of shame and barriers and uh, uh, to, to, to someone's, you know, identity and, and, and behavior. But that's not really progress. You know, for people in other parts of the world, it's 
having things work as they should and work properly, not subverting the norms just for the sake of it, just because people feel bad or because you want to eliminate all sorts of negative emotions. I think that's completely counterproductive and negative emotions and feelings have their place in, in a society. You know, I can't help but think about, you know, whether this this particular movement, I haven't thought much about it before, but is it is there some sort of reaction here to this, you know, I guess the supermodel standard where, you know, people actually don't eat a lot. You know, there's a lot of anorexia and, and this kind of thing. And this is kind of what, I mean, I've, I've, I've known people who have been in, maybe not supermodels, but modeling, right? And, and these were kind of the things that were expected of them. And then this sort of vision of beauty was the correct vision of beauty. I think it's gone from one extreme to the other. Um, and I, I think, you know, that that is... A very valid point. But again, it depends on which part of the world you're talking about, right? So it's the whole kind of um, very stick-thin uh, ideal of, of, a, of, a, of a, a beauty model, for instance. That's a very, to an extent, that's almost a Western phenomenon. And that's not to say that, you know, health women of healthy weight and, and, and sort of healthy physiques are not desirable. But for instance, growing up as a kid, I was always kind of mocked because I didn't fit the ideal beauty standard by, by, by Ghanaian standards or by African standards. I wasn't curvy. I was shaped like a tooth. I was just skinny and long with, with, with <laughs> even when puberty hit, you couldn't tell. Um, so, you know, our standard of beauty, for instance, you, you didn't really see rake thin models uh, sort of in, in Ghanaian adverts or anything like that. They were always curvy. They were always of a healthy weight. And you can see this sort of... A, a, in other parts of the world that are not the West, right? And in parts of the Middle East, you know, a curvy physique, a healthy, a healthy physique is is more desirable. Um, so I understand your point, but I, I think you know that's probably more exclusive to to the West, depending on the beauty standards in the West at the time. I think the wider conversation is we've the pendulum has swung so far from one extreme to the other, um, and it's because of you know the influence of I, I suppose postmodernist uh, postmodern thinking and this idea of how liberating it is to remove all ba all barriers and all forms of kind of self-control. Uh, and I, again, that's a very alien concept. In other parts of the world, that's not really our, our definition of progress. Our definition of progress is seeing how things should work and aiming towards that and aiming towards that properly, not trying to reinvent this whole different form of thinking and, and thinking that's a form of, of progress. It's, it's completely backwards. Well, you know, you're making me think of the harm reduction approach to ostensibly helping people who are addicted to heavy drugs like heroin or fentanyl. The approach we have, you know, San Francisco is the not one of the notable cities. The idea is simply like the one thing you can't do is sort of impose your will and take those drugs away from that person because that would be, you know, imposing on their individual freedom or something like this. But what you can do is you can help them take the drug as much as they want, which ultimately ends up killing them. There's been, you know, people like uh, Michael Schellenberger have looked into this sort of extensively and, you know, the, the people that, that he's interviewed that have actually made it off the street, which is very rare, right, because most people actually die and, and yeah. eventually, and, you know, kill themselves through the drugs and so forth. They're there because someone intervened, because someone imposed themselves on their freedom to be addicted or something like this. Yeah. So this is another example of this, this uh, idea you're talking about. I mean, it's it's quite it's quite a paradox, and it's a paradox I've noticed that the that is the West is in <laughs> in the grips of, which is 
you know, this this concentration on rights. So you have the right to not have, you know, something taken away from you or to have any controls imposed on you. But we never talk about the, the counter to that, which is responsibilities. And mm. I, I've noticed, especially from a lot of left-leaning politicians, they always talk about, it's your human rights to have access to, to, to good housing. It's your human right to have access to this. But there's never any conversations about what, what are your responsibilities. Because if you have the right, for instance, to not have any controls imposed on you, then you should be ultimately very responsible for yourself. And if you're, and by by actually not behaving in a responsible manner, for instance, by being a heroin addict, as an example that I will use, um, you're actually negatively imposing on the healthcare system in your country. That actually has a lot of external effects, which is unfair to the wider wider public. So I think that's really the kind of the paradigm I'm, I'm seeing. Right, more rights, but no responsibilities, and that's because it's it's part of a wider cultural uh, problem or a societal problem, really where people just don't understand their place. People, you know, if you ask someone, what does it mean to be a good upstanding citizen? What does it mean to be a man, for instance, which is why you've had the rise of the manosphere and certain public figures like Jordan Peterson, for instance. What does it mean to be a woman? All of these things, you know, the the the, the direction that the West is, in particular is moving to is, it doesn't mean anything, or it means what you want it to mean. And we're trying to make it sort of this fluid, uh, the, the French have this phrase, dans le flou, just this floating whatever, um, because you know, people don't want to impose their views on things. But at the end of the day, you have to have a vision. You have to have a vision towards something because that's what everyone should be aiming towards. And I feel like most non-Western countries understand this very well and are far more rooted in in reality. Meanwhile, in the West, it's just about deconstructing things for the sake of it. And then, you know, to hell with all the social consequences that come as a result of that. Is this a consequence of success? Because we know this... uh... I tended to call it wokeism, this critical social justice, this you know collection of of ideologies that function in the way that you just described. You know, is that a consequence of just being successful and then you know somehow losing that vision along the way and then exporting this to places like the UK? And I don't know how far, and I'm actually quite curious how far it's been exported to Ghana, for example, and other countries. Um, I do I do think there's an element of that, uh, definitely, of over-success. Um, I'll give you an example. So a lot of the, the kids that I went to school with in Ghana, they ended up sort of going to, finishing secondary school in Ghana and then going to university in the US. And what you notice is when they go back home to Ghana to, to work or whatever, you notice that amongst the urban elites that are highly educated either in Ghana or abroad, um, they have a they have a very atomized view of, of life, right? And and the, the cultural um, sort of norms have shifted. So it's very much me and what I want to do. And it's not very family centered or it's not really about a matter of survival it's about a matter of kind of individual personal satisfaction and uh, almost hedonism if you like but if the further inland you go the further you go into the more rural areas you notice that people tend to get married younger and stay together because there's this need to 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 actually you know survive together as a couple or to to kind of have to, to exist within a framework that has always worked because you don't have plenty, you don't really have the choice. Your your ultimate aim at that point in time is to try and survive and to, to make enough money to meet to make ends meet because you don't have the luxury of, of a foreign education that affords you a high paying job. Um, so that's what I've noticed sort of kind of the, the urban rural divide um, in Ghana, but it's certainly in the UK as well. I mean, you obviously know, I obviously notice it on a larger scale in the UK because uh, whenever the US sneezes, the UK catches a cold, as we say. Uh, so uh, the trend 
brands in the US tend to proliferate and in the in the West in general tend to proliferate rather quickly amongst other Western countries. Um, so yes, prosperity is, prosperity is an aspect of it. You know, people have just become wealthier. So the kind of things that preoccupy their minds are not the same as when they're trying to keep body and soul together. But I also think it's a wider conversation about sort of the decline of religion, you know, the breakup of the family, you know, there's a God-shaped hole in society, uh, as we say. And there's so many things, you know, we have a crisis of the soul and of identity. That's why you notice figures like Jordan Peterson and even to an extent Andrew Tate, they become such prolific figures because the question is, what does it mean to be dot, dot, dot? It's just it's a big gap there's a big we don't know and we're not allowed to answer that question because there's always pushback you know what is a man if you say a man you know what it means to be a man is to be honorable to protect to provide to be masculine to be stoic to have a stiff upper lip to you know to lead and all of these things you get so much pushback from from these women that exactly want those kinds of men but feel like they 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 shouldn't right and if you say what does it mean to be a, a woman it's to be you know to be a wife and a mother and to aspire to nurture and care which women naturally fall into as a role better than men in general but you know we can't say these things because you have the feminists pushing back saying but I don't want to do this this that and the other um so it it really is it's an identity crisis at the heart of it I think you know what we've been talking about are symptoms rather than kind of the actual core of the issue well and now what you have is for example the uh transgender folk and their allies I think is it called calling a lot of women (laughs) or, you know, feminists that don't subscribe to that ideology, TERFs in this very pejorative yeah. term, and similarly pushing back against the idea that, you know, women-only spaces have a place in society, for example. I know that, for example, I know at least one instance uh, in Canada, in British Columbia, where a women's shelter was defunded because they refused to uh, basically allow trans women i.e. biological men into this into uh you know women a better women's shelter this is another thing that i i just think you know makes the west look absolutely ridiculous and i think it actually uh really compromises the west more high ground on, on virtually any issue right if you have a situation where you can't even protect women right actual biological women because you're you're in, in the grips of this identity crisis and you're so obsessed with political correctness then what right do does does the west or any western country have to say stop this war here or stop doing that or you must expand your 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 the rights of x community in this particular region and it's something that many sort of uh non-westerners uh are really struggling to come to grips with because it's just sheer hypocrisy on the face of it i don't know if you heard about the rotherham grooving gangs in the uk um, but, you know, for the audience, it was a, a, a horrifying situation where thousands of white British girls were sexually abused and, and, and tortured and kidnapped and uh, you know, just in a horrific um, situation by gangs of, of mainly South Asian men. Uh, who were living in the UK, who hadn't properly assimilated with this country's cultures or values, that believed that sort of white women, particularly white young women, were at the bottom of, of, of the totem pole in terms of humanity and human dignity. And just, you know, targeted these young women that came from broken homes, raped them, abused them, tortured them, kidnapped them, you know, and it was a horrific situation. And what made it even worse was the fact that this went on for well over a decade and whenever these girls tried to report their situation to the police, because the police were so scared of disrupting the, the social fabric or being accused of racism, they literally turned a blind eye. And it's it's one of the biggest shames of the UK because, you know, if you speak to people that, especially non-Westerners, they would, the first thing they'll say is, where are these girls' fathers, uncles, brothers, cousins? Where are the men in these girls' lives to defend them? But, you know, it, it, that, that was the situation that these girls were left in. We let them down. And it really does 
joins the question, what right does you know any Western country have to criticize other countries when we can't even protect our vulnerable because we're so obsessed with identity politics and, and sort of gender ideology and all of this nonsense? Um, so, that, you know, I, I, I generally think it's very sad. I don't know how much better it's going to get, to be perfectly honest. Um, but I do, I do think that all everything we're seeing is literally the cause of a complete identity crisis. I don't think it's one thing to say to blame, you know, a particular group of people, for instance, or immigration or anything like that. It's really because many Western countries don't know what they are, what they stand for. Uh, they can't even ask, answer basic questions about what it means to be a man or a woman or an upstanding citizen anymore. And so we're just teetering along and just kind of rolling down the hill of ultimate destruction. You reminded me just now of there's this sort of, and I think that, you know, Britain is kind of on the forefront of this, where basically the police are being used to physically police speech that was found in social media that is deemed to be not politically correct or not according to ideology. And this is so, you know, people are actually being picked up for this. Can you kind of like, you know, tell me more about this, give me an example. I just, I know bits and pieces, but um, I know this is something that that is obviously quite significant to you, given everything you're saying to me here. And it's an embarrassing situation because, you know, we're, we're at the moment that the, the UK is in the grips of various strikes from nursing strikes to rail strikes to mill worker strikes. I mean, we're literally on the brink of a general strike um, and crime rates, particularly in major cities like London, have gone through the roof. Um, you know, police forces are arguably underfunded, but they're also very poorly trained. Um, again, something that we've seen the decline of over the last decade or so. Um, and so you would think that if you can't find a police officer to, to report a, a, a robbery to or the fact that, you know, police are really solving crimes at a very, very low rate, that they wouldn't have the resources to expend to arrest people for, for mean tweets that they put out. Um, but a lot of the, all the reports that are coming out of the UK that, you know, there are people that have tweeted things. Um, there was a lady up north, I think it was in Newcastle, that tweeted something critical about a lady who uh, took her child, her, her son, to Thailand to effectively be castrated um, in the name of, of him being a, a transgender woman. Um, she was visited by the police and, and accused of harassment and all sorts. And, you know, there's the online safety bill that's coming in, which various MPs, particularly conservative MPs, are opposing um, because of elements that would effectively criminalise speech online. Um, it, it's kind of wrapped up as as this, this, this bill to try and protect children. But really, it, it's more far reaching than that. And it's very sad, but also unsurprising, because, again, in the UK, even though, you know, Britain is, is the origin of, of, of obviously British common law and a lot of the kind of jurisprudence traditions that we enjoy in many Western countries. We, unlike the uh, the US, don't have, you know, a First Amendment. We don't have a right to free speech um, codified in the way that the, the US does. So obviously we are the first people to fall culprit to, to what we, most of us feared, which is the overreach of the state um, with the use of the police. And, and it's a very scary time. But again, it all comes down to an identity crisis. We don't know what we are. We don't know what we're about. Because if we did know what we are, we would know that you know free speech is one of the cornerstones of any of any open democratic society. And why we would threaten that uh, at the risk of a few mean tweets while our police force are, are barely functioning is, is completely mind-boggling. Another thing that just occurs to me, you know, we've been uh, given a window into this what's sometimes described as a public-private partnership in the U.S. where you know, U.S. intelligence agencies were cooperating with some of these, you know, biggest tech companies in the world, notably Twitter, because that's where we have the window because of Elon Musk's purchase and then, you know, sort of releasing yeah. some of these these files. No, so the impact here is, you know, a whole bunch of people are realizing that 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 there's uh, this ability to sh want to shape public perception, not just censor. Yeah. 
but to basically shape a kind of vision of reality almost uh, to a significant portion of people through using these incredibly powerful tools of control. And I'm very curious, you know, so that so it, it seems to certainly the, the free speech people here in the US and in Canada, this seems like a huge deal, right? And, you know, not, not even clear how far reaching the impact will be here. But what about on the UK? What about on, you know, if a, a place as far flung as, as Ghana? Is this is this impactful in any way? I mean, here on the sort of in the UK, we found sort of the Twitter revelations, the Twitter files, absolutely shocking. Um, albeit unsurprising, the extent to which effectively government agencies colluded with these social media platforms to try and silence voices. I mean, it is staggering. It is absolutely staggering. From you know, just an email from from uh, you know an agency or, or some high high flying politician saying this person needs to come off to them being suspended two weeks later, and and all of us thinking it's a coincidence. I mean, it's it's absolutely shocking. Obviously, the issue of free speech, uh, in in places like Ghana, um, particular, because obviously Ghana and and many African countries handle this differently. I think Ghana is one of the few kind of beacons of of really kind of free speech. Um, in Africa, um, our freedom uh, of the press index is, I think, the highest, um, one of the highest in the world, um, and which is why I often say you probably don't want to go into politics in Ghana because people don't don't hold back. Um, but obviously, in many parts of the developing world, that's not the case. In in, part, in countries like China, for instance, that's certainly not the case. Um, but in the UK, uh, again. And, and many parts of the EU, we, we don't really, we haven't taken this as serious, seriously as we should because we don't really see any other solutions, right? So, you know, the EU legislation, uh, it means that just in terms of free speech um, content and the issue of free speech online, there's kind of been a universal acceptance that if, if, if various governments believe it's for the safety of the public, then, you know, there's not really a lot of pushback to, to censoring that kind of content. Meanwhile, in the US, um, it's, it's, it's a far more rigorous system as it should be and really should be following the Americans' lead. But, you know, if, if you can shape public perception and, and paint Russian misinformation as the boogeyman, you know, we don't really have the culture, as, as Americans do, of pushing back on that. And it really is sad. But at the end of the day, uh, thankfully, we still have the Internet. So even if they don't allow certain information to pr proliferate here in the UK and, and various um, EU countries, you know, we still have access to the Internet. We can still see what's going on. Um, we still know that there are kind of freedom fighters in the US that will try and stay on top of things. And obviously, if the pendulum swings too far, it, it will obviously have to swing far back. I mean, that's the kind of backlash that we're seeing uh, amongst many EU countries with regard to COVID legislation and COVID policy, which is, again, makes me so angry. Um, uh, but, you know, that, I think when the time comes, the pendulum will eventually swing back. So actually, I do want to touch on that too. But before we go there, I do know that Ghana has a, 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 an unusual leader, an unusual president. That, that's one for sure. Um, and also, um, you know, compared to many African countries, it, it has a lot more free speech and a lot more freedoms in general. Um, I don't think most of us know very much about what's going on in there. Maybe you can just give me a thumbnail view here. Sort of culturally, it's, it's certainly more out, outward looking um, than, than other uh, countries. I mean, it's always had a kind of a tradition of, of relative political stability. Um, it's, it's one of the only few countries that's um, never had a civil war. Um, and obviously it's a commonwealth, so it was a British colony and it was known as the Gold Coast and then it achieved independence in 1957 and then it became Ghana. Um, I think one of the things to recognise uh, sort of about Ghana is this kind of juxtaposition between, I suppose, political openness uh, to the extent that, you know, corruption doesn't completely uh, overshadow everything, which and corruption is still a very big issue in Ghana, like in many other countries, uh, and the kind of this 
economic turbulence so you wouldn't think from all the social media clips you've been seeing online of people going of of, of many many people um all over the world going to Ghana for Christmas, which has become like a popular destination um, uh, in Africa for Christmas. You wouldn't think that the country had defaulted on its loans just a few weeks ago. And uh, actually, because of mainly the pandemic, but also the war in Ukraine, many African countries are, I think, 80%, up to 80% of African countries are at risk of defaulting on their loans. Um, many countries are at risk of starving, for instance, um, because of the blockades of, of Ukrainian wheat. Um, the price of wheat, for instance, in Egypt, which is actually the largest consumer of, of wheat, um, went up by 250%. So if to put that into context, imagine a staple food in your country uh, going up by 250% in price in, in the span of a few months. It's, it's really quite a horrifying prospect. I mean, Somalia is already basically on the brink of, of technically what we, we call as a famine. Uh, so it, it, it will be interesting. It is, it is interesting to kind of compare what's going on, obviously between Ghana and the West, but also mainly to the African subcontinent Um uh, well, the, the sub-Saharan Africa and the African continent in general, with with the rest of the world, both economically, both politically, where trends are leaning and all of that. Um, it's also it, it kind of serves as a kind of a, an interesting uh, playground for geopolitical analysis because you know just a, a couple of months ago you had um, Sergey Lavrov of of, of Russia uh, trying to go to many African countries to make sure that they don't side with the West over their condemnation of Ukraine because he knows that he can leverage cheap Russian oil and gas to these countries that are struggling to get by. And you see, you know, the same as with India taking a rel relatively neutral uh, stance on, on the war in Ukraine as they uh, shore up their reserves of oil and gas. Uh, so you know, I think it's useful for people to at least just keep up with news in other parts of the world, particularly, I mean, if you're interested in Ghana, yes, but in Africa and, and many parts of, of the developing world, just to kind of see how the things, many things the West, Western countries do as well relate to other other countries and other parts of the world because it's usually in tandem and i think that that you know it doesn't form a lot of what happens in our politics and how absurd sometimes western politicians look to the rest of the world i want to jump into um covid because you said something incredibly disturbing you said that the result of covid policy is that you have a whole slew of african countries that are you know basically in danger of defaulting on their loans skyrocketing food prices and increasingly we're realizing in the West. So on one hand, we saw this, you know, massive wealth transfer to the rich, the biggest in history. Yeah. And then it turns out that these policies, actually, people that were deeply in the know were already talking about this. Um, you know, some do Dr. Atlas, Dr. J. Bhattacharya, the advocates of the Great Barrington Declaration, yeah. the policies that created this reality, the, the lockdown policies, the shelter in place policies, that they, you know, started in China, went to the U.S., and it seemed to be like, you know, in coordinated fashion, a lot of the world just adopted, resulted in, you know, an incredible increase in poverty. This is how I, I why I tell people to sort of keep up with, with I suppose, global politics on the whole. Um, because, you know, what happens in other parts of the world does have consequences. I, I know people that like to harp on about climate change, um, for instance, they make the point that, there will be an influx of, of, of sort of poor people in rural areas that effectively kind of take care of farmlands and f food production and agriculture moving towards urban areas, more developed areas to try and one of one of the reasons is to escape the effects of climate change, for instance. But for something like COVID, COVID lockdowns, which, again, I've seen very little evidence of its effectiveness, but I have seen a lot of evidence of, of the damage it's wreaked, you know, not just because, you know, gas oil and gas prices have increased because they're readjusting to the normalizing demands um, 
following lockdowns, for instance. But just just in, in terms of what it did to sort of global production and how it left people at the bottom of the scale even that much worse off. I mean, I'll, I'll reveal now. I still I still try and send money back home um, to to friends that are struggling. Um, because you know the inflation rate is through the roof they really don't know how they're going to get by and i just think you know it's not just about the west and about what you do they you know we're living in an incredibly globalized world we, we have global supply chains you know these decisions i really don't think it was even fair for it to be left in the hands of su- such such few ideologically possessed you know incompetent halfwits you know I, I just think this is all very much incompetent done in bad faith collective action by by a bunch of you know in, elite elitists that didn't really think of the wide-reaching consequences i mean look at what it did to children especially children with developmental issues i have family young young family members that are autistic i mean the the, sort of the lockdown period really broke my heart someone someone as young as six years old having to 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 learn by computer 24 7 not having any sort of very limited interaction with people people of their own age i mean young young students in the uk their gcse and a level results were completely you know upended because they couldn't actually sit exams so they they, they literally could only get in, into university by predicted grades of their, their teachers i mean it, it was just a complete shambles and it really makes me angry thinking about it um but i just don't think people realize kind of the far-reaching consequences of this or what this means sort of the global restructuring or for immigration for instance and all, and all sorts I, re- I read recently and i'm struggling to remember who said this but the way a society treats its children is a reflection of its character, a reflection of its true values. And so, you know, with the null, we, we knew very early on in the pandemic that, the, that there is negligible risk to children from this virus. There's oh, yeah. no, un, unquestionably to healthy children, um, negligible risk. And yet, you know, we did these terrible things that you described earlier. I'm very curious, so in a society which is more traditional, like Ghana, for example, did did they employ the same policies, you know, sort of this lockdown across the board, or was it different? <laughs> I, I remember, um, it's funny you should mention that, actually. I remember, I think I went home December 2020, which was the last time I, I, um, I went home, and I was surprised no one was wearing a mask. And so I asked my dad, I was like, you know, the people on public transport, they're walking around like, what's going on? Why aren't people wearing a mask? And he was like, you know, that we don't have government benefits here right we don't have this idea that if you don't work someone's going to give you money you work or you die it really is that simple and i think because it, it just made me think of you know many western countries have been cushioned by this lie that if they don't work if they, they smash their economies into a brick wall they'll just be fine because they can just get government handouts and all of that but you know that's based on fake money it's based on money that isn't there um in ghana people just really they they were like we just need to get on with life. We just need to get on with things. And I think they were a bit less spooked. Yes. Esther, I'm just going to jump in because not only was it on that lie, but also, you know, in these Western societies where you had the so-called laptop class stayed at home and felt good about itself, sheltering in place, there's a whole lot of people that had to be out there making society work in the hospitals, you know, delivering things. Construction I mean, workers, plumbers. Sus- hundred percent right so so that itself was an illusion right yeah exactly and uh, you know that was one of the things that really really did my head in. i mean i used to work in construction so i trust me i'm 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 the advocate for for kind of uh the 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 what the forgotten class as i like to call them um but yeah so i went home and i I noticed no one was really wearing a mask and you know they were they were just had this very much we just need to get on with it sort of attitude and i think it was the fact that they 
when when news of kind of the virus's actual um I suppose death rate or survival rate more of like 99 point something percent depending on your age stratification and stuff like that I think people naturally behaved more sensibly so you had kind of older people just saying oh I'm just not going to go out that much or if I do I'll, I'll still just I guess mask up but they just had a very much but the young for instance were just like it's not an option for us to not not work and not to get on with things um and I think the attitude the attitude in general and just in terms of healthcare and our approach to our bodies is completely different right so you know we have this idea of 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 balance and having sort of a balanced healthy diet trying to move around trying to take care of your body and stuff like that I found it so comical that in a country in the UK for instance where sort of over a third of adults are very overweight in this country there was no real conversation about sort of public health and the sustainability of having to 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 fund a public health system where the population is unhealthy and is getting unhealthier but it's not the same thing uh, in Ghana so there was more of an approach of you know just try and eat right just you know have your veggies and drink your coconut water and stuff like it was a completely different it was such a paradox to me um because I just thought you know we were more in tune with basic realities of life than here in the west or in the U.S. for instance where they were giving you a Krispy Kreme donut if you got the bloody vaccine which again did my head in um, so I just I just think, you know, the approach is just completely different approach to life and to health and to, to priorities. The Twitter files that we were discussing a little earlier, one of the things they've kind of exposed has been something that I've been thinking a lot more about is sort of the inflow is the influx of this, uh, you know, the postmodernism as part of this woke ideology, um, plus our kind of movement more and more into the virtual world, certainly the laptop class, people who spend incredible amounts of time using screens, that's like me and you, I think, and, and many others. Um, there's, there's much more of a propensity to start believing things which people that are forced to deal with reality by nature, of the, by virtue of their job or their outlook, just kind of do very naturally, like for example, the truckers yeah. in Canada, right? Or one of the analyses, which uh, by Ennis Lyons, years, uh, I think it's about a year ago that I was reading this, was just that we're kind of one of the bifurcations in society is to virtuals and physicals, people who are you know yeah. faced with the physical realities, which it sounds like you know in Ghana that there's a lot more of that going on. Um, to people that somehow can get through life without noticing that someone's delivering their food. And that, and they're you know basically do playing doing their part by not going outside, and and everything's great. Yeah. Right. And yeah. and of course many other things that stem from this. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think I called it I called it sort of the the the, the elite the mm -hmm. the laptop elite right. They don't really understand because they just don't understand. They don't know. I mean. Really, how many people, especially in Ghana, can just, you know, say they work from a laptop every single day and that's their life and they have access to internet and consistent electricity and, and, and constant access to water and all of that. I mean, these are still things we're still trying, we're still getting right, you know. Um, but, the, you know, people here, particularly in London, for instance, they didn't bat an eye, but bat an eye when, the, you know, they, their toilet needed, uh, they needed someone to fix their toilet, for instance. And, and the plumber that came in, you know, he had his mask on and he had sort of, these wellies and all of that but he still came and did the job but in their head they have they, they just don't pay any mind to it and they're still advocating for for longer lockdowns and more working from home but the person who just came to fix your toilet isn't working from home is he um so i just i found it incredibly frustrating i found it incredibly naive i felt like the people that were clearly in charge of the the, the narrative were just not really mature enough to have a sensible conversation about what they're doing to people's lives with these 
measures and these lockdowns. It was it was very infuriating. I want to go back to your comments to, at the very beginning, just about family in general. And uh, um, so, you know, given you're you're uh, Ghanaian British, I guess. Um, what are your expectations yeah. from your family about what your life is supposed to be like, or and what what how do you envision the uh, the role of the family in society? Um, so I, I often say that a family is a small kingdom. And I, I, I say a man's house is, is his castle. And I genuinely believe it. Um, I think, you know, like Margaret Thatcher said there's no such thing as society, right? There's only people in their families. the only individuals in their families, which she said, which is a very controversial statement. But it's true. The bedrock of any society is the family, right? And when you, when you break up the family, that's when you notice that you have to rely more and more on the state. This concept of police your children before the police do is, is, a, is a perfect example of this. The role of family and my family in particular is to, to almost create kind of a, a barrier and a backstop against the worst impulses of, of, of man. Um, and there's so many ways that they do this, right? Having sort of communication, having companionship, having, you know, that bond, blood is stronger than, uh, blood is thicker than water, for instance. All of these things matter. But on, on a societal level, for instance, if I'm talking about sort of man, woman, kids, uh, grand, grandparents, aunties, uncles, and, and all of that, it's a community. It's a small community. And that community helps to keep each other in check because we all have our roles with, in that community that we play. It's not just based on, you know, Petty, petty politics is based on on, on competence and on, on identity and on progress and, and a solid vision towards something right a goal that's aiming towards something very specific so for instance if you have kids you don't want them to to grow up and to always be living off of you and in your house and all that you you want to raise your kids yes for the benefit and joy of, of having family and having an, a, you know an increase in your tribe and, and the joy of raising kids and producing productive members of society but you also want them to grow up and have their own kids and be capable of having their own kids and be capable of having long healthy flourishing relationships and be capable of you know proliferating the values that you were taught and you were passed on to you which are good and and, and healthy and, and giving them the ability to proliferate that onto their children and to their offspring and you notice that when, when a society doesn't have that or when a society doesn't prioritize that this is when you have you know you need the need to increase the police for instance because you have all this young youth violence and and, and gang culture and and all of these things so i think the role of the family has really been undermined and i think you can you can see that and even in the way and, and this is where we kind of move into the culture wars even in the way that uh inter intersexual dynamics has kind of proliferated as as a topic of discussion online you have all these kind of manosphere guys and feminists kind of talking about dating and things to expect from men and women and all of that and it's, it's generally because we're not even have a conversation about what is a man what is, what is expected of you as a man what is a woman what is expected of you as a woman what shouldn't you do what should you be aiming for you know why should you tell young women to not sleep around and to aim towards a family and 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 to, to run a home and, and why should you tell men to to aim towards provision and protection and 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 being a leader and and all of these things uh so i mean for me i think family is the bedrock of, of any society and i think once you, you break that up or you remove any incentives or you you kind of muddy the vision for what they should be aiming towards that's when you you, you unleash complete chaos and that's when a society becomes very unstable so you seem like a quite emancipated woman um so are, 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 are your parents happy with uh you know basically how things have worked out for you are you fulfilling their expectations uh yeah obviously the typical african parents are like when are you getting married uh which 
it's, uh, it's a conversation that uh, will happen eventually, I suppose, um, more and more frequently. Um, but I, I think they understand that the values that they passed on to me are, some, are values that I still very much hold dear. I'm still very close to my family. And um, I think, you know, I, I talk about, I suppose, my observa- observation of the West from the perspective of someone who didn't necessarily grow up here up until later on in life but it's also you know my experience seeing how sort of dating culture works and kind of this one night stand business and just people having like people have all sorts of interactions before they even put a label on what they're doing and I think it's very interesting and it's also a clash of values because I notice uh, a clash of values in the expectations that I think people should have for themselves in their relationships and how that actually plays out in real life um, it's very fascinating I mean that's something I could have a, a different conversation about but yeah my generation is very lost <laughs> You know, Esther, it seems like a theme in our in our chat today is, you know, people being very lost, not just the young people, but, you know, as we finish up here, you know, you also, I know, are a very, very upbeat, positive kind of visionary person. And so how do you see ourselves kind of moving forward? We, 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 we don't want to all be walking around black build here, right? Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I think on the youth kind of being lost and where where do I see kind of them regaining a soul, basically, I think it very much comes down to changing the culture. Um, and, and that happens slowly, right? That, that You know, Rome wasn't built in a day, but I do have a lot of sympathy for younger people because I feel like, you know, they're on the back end of, of generations of damage. So, you know, this isn't just like, you know, today with the pronouns and the whole sort of gender ideology nonsense, it started in the 60s and 70s when you had the phenomenon like no-fault divorce or, you know, effectively the destruction of the church and, and traditional family setups and, you know, very radical forms of feminism and all of that. So I do, I do feel sympathy for, for the current generation because they were raised by people that weren't really rooted in, in the kind of values I'm talking about that uh, really from the bedrock of, of a stable family unit and society at large. Um, so I think, you know, a big part of that is just changing the culture, changing the kind of um, content that we consume, but also uh, making people feel comfortable with actually aspiring for traditional fa- well, traditional values in general uh, and uh, for a particular kind of lifestyle that may not be very popular amongst uh, major cultural figures like rappers and, and sports personalities and all of that. Um, sort of on the larger front, society-wise, where do I see things going? I see, I, I personally see a, a, a almost split. Um, I feel like there's going to be a divide between uh, people that effectively move towards the established wisdom, so kind of ha- have a more uh, traditional-minded approach towards their life, you know, have traditional aims and all of that, and then people that really don't, um, which I feel like is, is amongst our media classes and sort of the progressive lot that you see online a lot. Um, so I, I do think there there is kind of, you know, conservative conservatism now has become a bit of a counterculture, but I think that's a counterculture that's gaining steam. And I think there are people that are going to assert, you know, their desire to live a particular kind of lifestyle and then people that are going to continue to try and push a progressive agenda as opposed to their own detriment. It also helps that many progressives don't have children, so there are fewer of them to proliferate their, their toxic ideas. <laughs> Um, but overall, I do think there will be a split. I do think there will be people, and which is difficult, but I think once you found your own niche within a culture, that helps people try and, it makes people more comfortable to move towards it as opposed to kind of being a lone ranger and trying to, to, to move through the world with a certain set of ideals when everything is against you, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, Esther, you're certainly one of these uh, young people that's sort of you know pushing towards a more traditional view. And so I, I have to say, I certainly have appreciated following your voice 
online and, and commentary and so forth. It's such a pleasure to have had you on. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Thank you all for joining Esther Kraku and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kelleck.